Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Welcome back to our episodes on Killer Queens and Monstrous Maidens, where we're taking a peek into the killer ladies of fiction. Last time, we did a rather large unpacking of where the trope of the murderous bombshell got her start, and looked at the evolution of the femme fatale in pop culture. We also dipped our toes into the world of supernatural beauties that were too dangerous to get near, even after they were dead. This time, we're going to focus our attention on monster girls as they move through their life cycle in fiction, starting with their liminal and horrifying beginning stages, moving into the usually catastrophic teen years, growing into parasitic or even evil motherhood, until coming into her cannibalistic own as she spends her golden years usually on her own in the woods. Let's jump right into the life cycle of Monstrous Maidens. If you were with us last time, you remember that we talked about one of the hallmarks of the femme fatale was the sense of her being the epitome of womanhood. One of the things that made her so unattainable was that not only was she never going to give you any children, she was also seemingly never really one herself either. This ties into the idea of this kind of woman being defined by her beauty and her body. She's not like other women, being judged as an ideal that is unattainable, not only by the men who want her, but also by the women who might want to be her equal. We discussed last time that this isn't a reflection of real women in the world, so much as a version of them that can be purely objectified despite the consequences. Real women started out as children, and horror has no shortage of examples of how monstrous kids can be. Creepy kids are a staple in horror fiction, which isn't surprising if we consider that children have always carried a bit of chaos about them, both in fiction and in real life. In reality, we have created a kind of understanding around children that allows them to step outside of the boundaries of hierarchy and social acceptability. Anyone who's ever been in the presence of a toddler before knows that all bets are off when it comes to what might or might not please them at a moment's notice. And much of our modern entertainment revolves around their mercurial emotional states. They're also disconnected from social accountability, which allows them to say or do things that no adult would be able to get away with for the most part. Because of this, there's always been lore around children and what they can and cannot do, both on the surface and spiritually. Japanese folklorist Yoshiharu Ijima wrote that in past ages, children, being considered closer to the gods and the other world, also played the part of intermediary between man and the gods in his 1987 paper, Folk Culture and the Liminality of Children. We still see elements of this today in actual practice, such as the Kumari Devi, or child goddesses from Nepal, as well as in fiction, with surrogate characters like Baby Yoda. It's really no wonder as to how kids become so precious, even godlike, to a society. But given the power that we attribute to them, 
Children are also more than just a little terrifying sometimes because of it too. From a pragmatic view, this is the heritage of our society playing out before us. In our last episode, we talked about how one of the great sins of the femme fatale was her refusal of motherhood, and in doing so, denying men their legacy. These are heavy words to be putting on the backs of something that's not only tiny, but fragile. The lives of the next generation always start off small and in need of guidance in the world to continue our understood and ideal way of life. For centuries, our communities have come up with their individual methods of protecting those younger members of society who were most vulnerable, whether it was pinning a blue eye pendant to their crib in Slavic countries, carrying an effigy of the three angels to ward off Lilith for Jewish mothers, or tying a prayer to a baby's body for practitioners of Islam, among many others. The faith or location may differ, but the intention is always the same, to try to gain some control over the specter of death that hangs over this tiny defenseless body. Fear of losing a child is universal and timeless. Today we have science to help combat infant mortality rates through things like a better understanding of disease transmission or immunization through vaccines. Still, Throughout the world, mothers live in fear of anything that might take their child away from them, especially something that cannot be explained. Sudden infant death syndrome, also known colloquially as crib death, is something that science still does not have answers to, though they have theories that give modern mothers at least something to do in the face of something that may seemingly, at random, take their baby from them. That said, crib death isn't a modern phenomenon. And in the decades and centuries past, there hasn't been a doctor to tell the mother what might have caused it. When left with just the threat of anything from disease to choking hazards to invisible parasites to causes that we can't even pin down now, mothers of old have turned to the lore of their communities to try to chase away that looming specter. Sometimes this took some very unexpected forms to modern or just Western eyes. One particular strategy to protect children that's closer to home than some others was the Victorian practice of dressing all kids up, regardless of their gender, in feminine clothing. David J. Scull, in his biography on Bram Stoker, Something in the Blood, had commented on this, stating that the act of dressing all children as girls was custom in Ireland and throughout Western Europe, and it continued until the child reached about the age of seven. At that point, Scull wrote, that the boys would undergo something called breaching, which marked the transference of a child from the mother's ethereal domestic realm to the father's beastly worldly domain. The reasoning behind the gender neutrality for children was based in the belief that young boys especially were susceptible to being snatched away by the fairies and replaced with a changeling, if they were replaced at all. This practice continued well after the Victorian period and only stopped at the onset of World War I, though the use of christening gowns being used for babies regardless of their gender is a holdover from this tradition. Ireland and the West in general were not the only ones to blur the lines of gender. Ijima wrote that Japanese children who were said to be mediums were beautifully dressed and painted up and led a quasi-hermaphrodite existence. Though in this case, it was to bring the child closer to the other world, as suitable vessels for divine oracles. Again, 
These practices seem to be limited to children under the age of seven. These cultural practices had seemingly opposite desired outcomes of either bringing a child closer to or further away from the otherworldly. But the idea behind them was the same, in that they obscured the degree to which these tiny beings are even connected to reality and humanity. We can link this back to the ideas that the Victorians had and the common ideas that have been circulated in the West for ages about women and their connection to the dreamy subconscious states of being. Skull even mentioned that children under seven were still in the ethereal domestic realm of the mother, and if we compare that to the lore surrounding the child mediums talked about by Ichima, and specifically how they were ideal for embodying the divine, it makes sense that we sequester them away from our real world and the rules that we have set in place to control it. These are only two examples of how children represent a kind of chaotic element in the world, unbound by our wants and, by extension, seen as less than human sometimes. Being connected to this world outside of our own, there are many stories that tell of children being the link to a benevolent, divine presence, or a way to connect with a lost loved one. That said, in any kind of liminal space, where the good can get in, so can the bad. In her book, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, author Sadie Doyle spoke of another practice that Irish mothers sometimes did, of their own accord, or by pressure from family, of leaving a suspected changeling in the woods and walking away from it in the dark only to retrieve it later. This practice is horrifying, but it also goes to show how strong the belief that there was something truly powerful and frightening in the idea that this tiny being may not be human at all. If we stop to consider how chaotic children can be, through their behavior that can be destructive without any reason, through the way that their arrival can change the bodies and hormonal balance of the mother, or through the way that they demand a complete upheaval of your life, it's no wonder that these liminal beings have found a permanent home in the world of horror. Now up to this point, we've been talking about babies who could be any gender, but as we've seen, the lore surrounding children sets them outside of our societal expectations and restrictions. Blurring the gender lines reinforces the idea that they are not bound by the binaries that we so often apply to adults, and, according to both these examples, that makes these children that much more attractive to something much bigger and potentially more frightening than us. What's fascinating about the example of the Irish mothers trying to protect their children from the threat of the fair folk was in how the safer gender to be was female. If we fast forward to the realm of fiction, we find that girl children are anything but the safer option. The divine babies of Christianity were born male in both the stories of Moses and Jesus. A more modern option is Cole Sear in 1999's The Sixth Sense who is terrorized by the people he sees until he embraces his ability and becomes a guiding light for the lost souls of that story. There are exceptions, of course, with characters like Damien from The Omen or the little boys in Goodnight Mommy, but overwhelmingly little boys in fiction will more often than not lead the characters to redemption and a kind of comforting truth. Little girls, especially in horror, will often lead them to death. Starting with a more innocent example, Let's look at little Carol Ann from the film Poltergeist. Writer Pete Rainier 
for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, described the film as the story of a little girl who puts her parents through the most outrageous tribulation to prove their love for her. Though it's interesting that the haunting of the film sits entirely on Carol Ann's shoulders. If you're unfamiliar with the story, the film is about a family having just moved into a new house that was recently built in a newly developed area that also happens to be an ancient indigenous burial ground. Leaving the 80s racial insensitivities aside for a moment, we should note that the parents do have two other children, including a teen daughter and a boy that isn't much older than Carol Ann. While the boy is terrorized to a small degree during the build-up to the big event, the wronged ghosts of the film make it known that they only want one member of the family, and that is their angelic little blonde girl. As such, it is only the little girl who carries the responsibility for the torment of the family to come. Carol Ann represents one example of an interesting dichotomy in horror, where the protagonist can also be the major antagonist as well. We'll see this again with the girls coming up further down our life cycle, but in this case, Carol Ann's only real crime is that she's an innocent young girl. That said, it turns out that being an innocent young girl is bad enough. We find out through the psychic medium, Tangina, that the displaced and restless spirits that exist where there used to be a graveyard are attached to Carol Ann because the light that she produces to them is on par with the light that would lead them, presumably, to heaven. In this sense, we have a child playing the go-between for the adults, dead or alive, as a link to God. But as Tangina explains, God isn't the only one that she can get close to. Within this other realm that Carol Ann alone can access, there exists something that the adults understand as the beast, who convinces the child to use her powers of attraction with the other wandering spirits for its own gains. This effectively places this child in the power seat between essentially God and the devil, and the only way for the adults of this story to get their own power back is to rip her away from it. Though they are successful in doing so, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. Carol Ann is returned, still angelic and sweet, but the chaos of her reality isn't over, even by the end. The house is destroyed, the truth of death beneath it is revealed, and, in the end, the father safeguards his family by acknowledging that there is power in the little girl and getting rid of the instrument that started their woes in the first place, the television that allowed the spirit, or outer world, to find his daughter. Of all the smallest monsters we'll look at, Carol Ann is the most benign. She's too young to truly understand what's happening to her, and her monstrosity is more circumstantial than it is willful. She is chosen because she alone can see and talk to the monstrous elements of her environment, being closer to them than she is to her own family. That said, she's also given a choice where her loyalties lie. Carol Ann can access the good light of God, and, in this case, can be the salvation of those lost spirits looking for rest where her family had caused disturbance. She has the power to offer redemption for the adult world and the sacrilege they committed, giving her an almost Christ-like aura. She also has the power to deliver them all straight to hell. Tangina, in her assessment of the situation, explained that the beast appears to Carol Ann as just another child and can speak to her in ways that only a child would understand. There are parallels here between Eve and the serpent in the Garden of Eden, 
where innocence is a key factor in getting the target, in this case Carol Ann, to do something that causes absolute destruction that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And in this case, the serpent kind of succeeds. Though Carol Ann is taken away from the offending spirit, it evicts the family from their own sanctuary, destroying their house and taking it away forever. They are left alive, but homeless and carrying with them the link to this world and the wider spiritual war between good and evil. That said, at least Carol Ann had some decent spiritual babysitters, leaving her shaken by the event, but ultimately unharmed. The same couldn't be said for one of her most famous counterparts. In December of 1973, the name Regan McNeil became infamous enough to echo through nearly five decades of cinema to still produce chills in people to this day. The Exorcist is a film that really needs no introduction for most. It's transcended genre fiction and become a pop cultural phenomenon, giving us so many memorable scenes and quotes, as well as the icon of Regan, as portrayed by Linda Blair. The impact of this film on the horror genre cannot be overstated, as it changed the game almost overnight in defining for many what a good horror movie was. With films like this and its contemporary, Rosemary's Baby, which we'll be getting to shortly, the days of the creature feature were going out with the tide. After all, how could something like Dracula or the Wolfman compete with the unseen terror of a body possessed by evil itself? Of course, it wasn't lost on people whose body was taken into possession. We should note that Regan came first in the horror world, and her shadow would stretch over the genre well into the decades to come, especially for films like Poltergeist. If you're unaware, this story, originally a book by William Peter Blady, is about a young girl named Regan who becomes possessed by a demon following her encounter with a Ouija board. As she falls under the demon's power, Regan begins to behave in disturbing ways, prompting her mother to bring her to the doctor to find out what's going on with her. Seeing as possession isn't usually within the realm of medical science, she then turns to two priests who take command of the situation and try to save the girl's soul at the cost of their lives. There's a little too much to unpack with this film to do it justice in its entirety here, but we can scratch the surface by focusing on the possessed star, there are volumes written about Regan's transformation from girlhood to possession and how it mirrors her transition into puberty. Regan is, after all, 12, and at that threshold where society draws the line between the innocent and the abject. Going back to the 2019 book Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Sadie Doyle wrote that puberty marks not only a girl's first step towards adult sexuality, but the beginning of her reproductive capacity. Her blood is terrible because her power is threatening. Her fertility is something patriarchy must demonize and control to secure its own existence. If you've listened to the Dracula episodes, or took the time to listen to the first half of this month's theme, you might be noticing the incredible similarity this bears to the way that Lucy Westernra was executed. The girls of these narratives take the backseat to the power of the men who will save them from this horrible thing that exists inside of them, but their saving grace always comes in the form of physical violence. 
Even Roger Ebert described the film as both an attack and a frontal assault in his original review from 1973. It's not an unfair assessment, especially when we look at how the men of these stories seek to resolve the supernatural problems with these girls. The end result always plays out on their physical bodies, and we already know that in Lucy's case, that meant certain death. Regan, on the other hand, was their attempt at a different way to turn back the clock and try to restore their control. This isn't the first time we've seen this, and it certainly was not the last. The attempts to keep the fair maidens that were just on the cusp of their transition to womanhood locked into an eternal childhood were a staple of fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty, Rapunzel, and Snow White. All three of these tales have elements that can be read as a means of trying to keep children in a state of innocence and well away from their oncoming sexual awakening. This is also something that we saw with Beverly in the different incarnations of It. While she had her own reservations and fears around the onset of puberty, her father was at the heart of the efforts in keeping her as a little girl that could be contained and controlled. What all these characters share as a common factor in their respective tales is that no matter how hard the powers that be try, they always fail to contain the monstrosity within any of these girls. For our fairy tale maidens, it is the denial of the death of their innocence that keeps them fixed in place, usually trapping them in an eternal slumber and sometimes even a glass coffin. For Bev and Regan, that death of their childhood is made a lot clearer through the use of blood, and Regan isn't shy about showing off her blood in a particularly gruesome and infamous crucifix scene. Unlike the other girls, however, Regan was anything but silent in the face of her struggle, and hers was a fight that played out as much in what she said as it did in the transformation of her body. If we think of the two girls that have been brought up in our discussion on puberty, Lucy was silently wasting away, and Beverly was forced to be quiet about the changes going on within and around her. Regan, by comparison, is positively dramatic, she bleeds, her face is changed, and marked as a sign of her transformation, and the things she says are vulgar and highly sexualized. There's a baser element to the way that she speaks, and it is really only shocking because it's coming from the mouth of a young girl. This is of note because, if we recall, most of the time, young children can get away with saying strange, inappropriate, or even vulgar things, with adults passing off their behavior, as being amusing precisely because they don't know what they're saying. There's no such pass here for Regan, who is clearly old enough to have some understanding of what's coming out of her mouth. That's not to say that she isn't still innocent, nor is she ready for sex. In fact, many of the things she says might be considered rude or gross, but they also echo the kinds of things that preteens would say to taunt each other or call out for shock value. In that sense, Regan, as a possessed child, is almost a better reflection of a kid left among their peers and removed from the adult veneer placed upon her. She is no longer idealized into being part of any binary of good or bad, and because of this, she's free to express thoughts and feelings that aren't allowed in any kind of adult space. 
And it's not an accident that most of those thoughts and feelings center on her body. After all, the feminine body goes through some dramatic and often gross and uncomfortable changes through puberty that are seldom spoken about outside of hushed conversations that are usually kept behind locked doors. What the little girl in this story is saying is attributed to the demon within her body, but in expressing all these vulgar, baser thoughts, the demon isn't allowing the adults of the story or the audience to hide from the fact that little Regan isn't going to be kept sleeping for much longer. In fact, it punctuates this lesson by making sure that even if you could ignore what she's saying, you can't ignore how she looks. The use of body horror in The Exorcist is among one of the many reasons it lingers with the audience for so long after. After all, We've been seeing women in pain and young girls in threatening situations in cinema for as long as moving pictures have existed. But this film was really one of the first to bring that pain into sharp focus for an international audience. Unlike in Hammer films, where you would see blood fly, but everything was reduced to a couple of flashes, and even if the woman was dead, she was left mostly intact and beautifully preserved. Regan is anything but framed to be attractive by the climax of the film. As Sadie Doyle pointed out, her transformation involves showcasing every fluid that the body can produce, and it's all coming out of the young girl to form the assault that Roger Ebert had described. Again, we can liken this to the way that the body changes during decomposition, but instead of dying, Regan is just becoming a young woman. It goes deeper than this, though. It's in the way that her face goes from being that of a little girl to being grotesque. Obviously, this isn't necessarily what happens to all teens, but for some kids, the onset of puberty can mark the start of a painful change in their skin that leaves them feeling just as uncomfortable or unrecognizable to themselves as Regan. This is even worse for trans teens, whose relationship to their body at this point can leave them feeling helpless and trapped. While the makers of The Exorcist couldn't have predicted all of this upon its release, the fact that this story remains so rooted to the body allows for it to speak volumes and goes beyond their intentions. This is one of the first times we've seen a coming-of-age tale on screen that is so steeped in the physical, it's gross and messy, and really does seem like a death with none of the feel-good poetics that often accompany a fictional character's move from childhood to becoming an adult. The end of the ordeal may have returned Regan back to the cradle of innocence for the time being, but the lingering fear the film left behind clearly touched a nerve for audiences when it comes to the monstrous feminine. If we fast forward to the new millennium, we get a front row seat to what happens when that monster can't be prayed back into submission. In 2000, the sleepy little town of Bailey Downs found itself dealing with a rather vicious monster problem that became incredibly personal for sisters Ginger and Bridget Fitzgerald. The Canadian film Ginger Snaps remains a favorite among horror fans even 20 years later depicting the schism that grows between the two morbid sisters who are dealing with a painful and horrifying transformation that no one around them seems to understand. Unlike The Exorcist, however, the film is overt in its message. 
Ginger has hit puberty, and she's also becoming a werewolf. Unlike Regan before her, Ginger's transformation comes when she's in high school, and well past the age when she can be stuffed back into her tower or glass coffin to just sleep through this for a few more years. Before getting attacked on the night of the full moon, her transformation is marked by the start of her bleeding. There is a marked difference between the way the blood is framed between Regan and Ginger. Regan's bleeding is implied to be from her injuries that she sustained from the cross, but there's a subtext that lies beneath the horror. With Ginger, the adults around her all assume that what's going on is the normal transition from childhood into puberty, and are either dismissive or present her with sanitized clinical understandings of what's going on within her that never addresses the real problems. Even her mother washes the whole event with a kind of forced positivity and celebration that completely overshadows the trauma going on within Ginger and the growing gulf between the two sisters as they navigate their way through these changes. Where Regan before her was the center of attention, that attention was never directed in any way other than banishing the demon and getting the little girl inside to be normal again. And all of this only happened after a good amount of denial and exhausting all other explanations. Alas, Ginger could not be denied either, but unlike Regan, the adults of her story tried a hell of a lot harder to turn a blind eye to her monstrous nature. For women of the real world, the discourse around menstruation is something that can be difficult for a lot of people, not made easier by how it's seen by the culture at large. It's been a running joke for decades that the public image of getting one's period is akin to going rafting or horseback riding or other trappings of an active lifestyle, with commercials usually punctuating these activities with images of a pad or tampon being doused with blue liquid. The messages are laughable in the face of reality, but they are also thoroughly clear. These are exactly the same ideas of her monthly curse that Ginger is delivered, which turns out to be as effective and helpful to her as the old werewolf movies are to her sister Bridget. There's a code of silence around what actually goes on in the female body when she's menstruating, and blue liquid or pamphlets with line drawings of the uterus or celebrations marked with cake and food are all ways in which the conversation around it are further buried. This isn't an accident either. These are the sterile packaged ideas that culture wants to frame around menstruation to keep it contained and the narrative around it controlled. In her paper, Something's Wrong, Like More Than You Being Female, Bianca Nielsen wrote that the matriarch of the family, Pamela, is the abject mother who refuses to relinquish her hold over her daughters and their bodily functions, as per the definition of abject that was used by Barbara Creed. In this case, Ginger cannot be contained like Regan could, because her childhood is over and there's no negotiations about that. The only way that her mother, the school, and society around her can continue to keep her in line is to try to let the old information do the work of teaching girls what's going on while teaching them nothing at all about their bodies and how to navigate the changes within them. This, of course, has a disastrous, though not unexpected, outcome. And this is only what happens as the result of benign but willful neglect on the part of the adults. What happens when monstrous girls are created by equally monstrous mothers is even worse. 
we're getting into some heavier parts of our life cycle here, so let's take a few seconds to pause. In the meantime, I'm going to let our friend of the podcast, Naomi, tell you about how great the 90s were. You remember that sound? Yeah, you do. The 1990s. It was fun! Lots of fun music, good times, bookended by pop bands. And right in the middle, we got a little grungy. So many artists came and went and left us wondering, what are they doing now? We know what Marky Mark ended up doing, but what about the rest of the funky bunch? Alanis Morissette had a pop career before she made it big with Jagged Little Pill. The KLF, an EDM band from England, got Tammy Wynette to sing on one of their tunes. All kinds of crazy stuff happened, and we're going to talk to you about it with interviews with some of the biggest stars of the 90s on Dope Nostalgia, the podcast. I'm Naomi Carmack, and I'm your host. Check us out on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. And look us up on the internet at dopenostalgia.com. There are some pretty amazing interviews coming up on Dope Nostalgia, and even some great music trivia games on the horizon too, so be sure to check out Naomi's podcast. About four months after Reagan made her film debut, an author, who would later be named the Master of Horror, released his first full-length novel about a girl whose nightmarish high school life is turned around when she's asked to prom by a handsome, popular athlete only to end up with a bucket of pig's blood dumped on her head. The rest is all fire and blood and death. Carrie, the novel and films, deal with the same world of the monstrous feminine that had hoped that Ginger would just quietly step in line and sit in perpetual silence about what was going on inside of her. And in Carrie's case, she is contending with this world entirely alone. Subject to abuse from her peers and mother, and neglected by the rest of the world, Carrie White isn't just a social pariah, but a true outcast. Unlike the Fitzgerald sisters, who have committed to each other to reject the world around them, Carrie is forced to the outer fringes and unwelcome to participate in anything at all. Unless anyone think this sets her free, all her outsider status does is box her in further as she tries, and fails, to go about daily life within a community that already doesn't see her as human. In fact, Carrie's whole life is defined by a rigid set of rules that must be obeyed at all cost, even before anyone knows what she's harboring inside of her. From the moment we met her in the De Palma film, she was essentially a time bomb with the rest of the cast of characters around her doing their best to swallow her and make her small enough to be controlled. Scholar Shelley Stamp Lindsay, as quoted by Bianca Nielsen, wrote that Carrie is not about liberation from sexual repression, but about the failure of repression to contain the monstrous feminine. And this is obvious from the very beginning. As Carrie stood in the shower, terrified by the blood coming from her body, her cries are met with the chorus of plug it up, an apt metaphor for what the world has done to her telling her to shut up and take the abuse lobbed at her, denying her identity by forgetting her name, locking her in a closet for her imperfections, Carrie's tale is what happens when that code of silence impressed upon girls coming of age cannot be held. The thing was that this code of silence that Ginger had to contend with had almost 30 years to learn how to be more vocal about it. 
Carrie White, by contrast, had the silence thing down, but showed us that it really doesn't do any good at that whole containing the monster thing. And no one fought harder to contain that monster than her mother. When we spoke about Carol Ann earlier, we talked about the dichotomy of protagonists who are also antagonists of their story. While it's true that as a child, Carol Ann didn't do much to earn her monstrous status, it didn't necessarily spare her either, because the destructive element that plagues her family is connected and attracted to her specifically. In Regan's case, she's clearly a monster, but one that can be controlled by the end. Her antagonism is something that can be nullified within her, and removed by the skillful hands of the men who came to save her. Ginger is allowed her antagonism because Bridget is able to shoulder the role of the protagonist, who tries to save them both. In that case, neither of the girls is entirely good or wholesome, but neither is entirely evil, either. This should be the way that the roles work in Carrie, as it's clear from the start that the poor title character isn't really evil at all, so much as she's reacting to the abuse and the unfairness of what goes on in her life. By contrast, Margaret White is a very obvious antagonist, forcing her daughter to pray for hours on end in a windowless closet for things that she cannot help, such as getting her period. In this situation, the two women should be engaged in a similar situation to the Fitzgerald sisters, with Margaret taking the role of the villain and Carrie taking the more innocent path. Instead, like Regan and, to a lesser degree, Carol Ann, Carrie is both at the same time, and her mother takes on a secondary antagonist role to finish off the film. We'll get back to Margaret in a second, but for the moment, let's unpack Carrie and her dual role. Scholar Carol J. Clover, famous for her work in highlighting the final girl trope for her book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, wrote extensively about the use of perspective when it comes to horror films. She posits that this is part of what allows Carrie to act as something more than a sympathetic villain for her story, and this is what makes her unique enough to be enduring. This is a view that's supported by the reception to the remakes versus the original film. Carrie was first remade in 2002 as a made-for-TV movie written by Brian Fuller of American Gods and Hannibal fame. In regards to his version of Carrie, the writer said in an interview with Fangoria magazine that this woman is victimized her entire life, and then, the moment things start to come through for her, she's victimized again. And then she becomes a murderer and you kill her. That just seemed really cruel. In this regard, Fuller is entirely correct about the cruelty, but in making Carrie a full protagonist in his version, the new narrative missed the point. All versions of Carrie begin with her under the heel of the world, and you are able to sympathize with her because you feel not just her pain, but the weight of the things that are hurting her. When Fuller says this girl is not a murderer, he's not wrong, but she always was a monster even if it was never her choice. The 2013 version of Carrie did on some level understand this as well, but in the end she too was quick to save those who had been kind to her, dampening down her monstrous nature and trying to find the protagonist within her to edge out her antagonistic elements. For both films, despite having excellent writers and glowing performances from their casts, still had critics and fans alike insisting that they were unnecessary remakes. 
One of the biggest reasons for the dismissal from audiences is because both versions deny Carrie her full transformation into a monstrous powerhouse. If we go back for just a second to see what Fuller had to say about cruelty, we have to unpack what it was that drove Carrie and how her inner monster developed. In the De Palma film, Carrie lived in fear of everyone, and to some extent, that included the audience. As Clover pointed out, the way the film is shot, the audience perspective is from that of her tormentors, making us part of the world that shapes and hurts her. We are made to feel sympathy for her pain, but we are unable to voice any objection, and the only person with whom we can feel the slightest bit of vindication through is Sue Snell. Still, her act of giving up her boyfriend so that Carrie can feel normal is, unto itself, a well-meaning act of cruelty as well. It's clear that Carrie has a shine for this boy from the start of the film, and, had things actually turned around as Fuller suggested, she was destined to find out that her beautiful moment of being crowned queen was a lie. And we are witnessing all of this from the beginning, knowing full well that she's destined to fail, with or without the pig's blood that gets dumped on her. Her final victimization is where our perspective shifts from being in the uncomfortable position of someone being cruel for the sake of it, to someone who has godlike power and a rage within her to slaughter everyone she sees. And she does. This is ultimately why the other two versions of Carrie fail the character, is because they don't allow her to experience the monster within her to its full capacity. When Carrie kills at the climax of the film, we see from her perspective that everyone in front of her is laughing. Like the killer queens we talked about before, all of these people have had a hand in creating Carrie, even when they were well-meaning or trying to be kind. Their actions, benign or otherwise, unleashed that horror, and Carrie the monster wasn't interested in sorting who was innocent and who wasn't. Once she embraced the monstrosity within her, we were finally allowed to feel her catharsis and were freed from our prisons of being in the shoes of her tormentors. That said, that freedom, much like with poor Carrie, offered no comfort in the end, as we watched even those people who had sought to befriend the monster burn for their sins. The thing about Carrie is that while she still embodies the monstrous feminine, her final obstacle is to square off with and destroy the abject mother of the story. In the face of this, ultimately, she both succeeds and fails. She is forced to kill her own mother out of self-defense, though Margaret gets a few good stab wounds in first. And she was only able to do this because ultimately, Carrie came back to her embrace in an effort to seek comfort in her. The end result was that Margaret tried to force her daughter back into the role where she could be controlled, but it was too late for that. In embracing her ability, Carrie is able to defeat this secondary villain, but unlike her mother who would have stood in victory over her dead daughter had the tables turned, Margaret is the only person for whom she mourns. Her love for her only parent, despite all the abuse she'd been put through, is what creates the dichotomy in the first place. In the end, she chose not to save herself, but to crawl with her mother's body back to the womb of the prayer closet, 
and let the world swallow her after all. It is a tragic fate, and one that is difficult to stomach, but it was at least something she chose, even if it was for the wrong reasons. It was, after all, what Mother would have wanted. And speaking of Mother, let's talk about Margaret White. As mentioned before, she is the darker version of Ginger Snaps' Pamela, as the abject mother who refuses to allow her daughter to have any autonomy over her body or anything in her life. Where Pamela was trying to force a particularly positive and tailor-made outlook over the bodies of Ginger and Bridget, Margaret offers nothing but punitive judgment over Carrie, shutting her off from any outlook of the world other than her own. Sadie Doyle points out that none of the Bible passages she reads are actually in the Bible, leaving the unsettling impression that Margaret may have written her own scripture, serving as both prophet and congregant to her own highly particular understanding of God. This is an important observation, because it defines the nature of the power imbalances between the two women in a way that allows the one who is technically less powerful to be the more monstrous. In reality, Carrie has the ability, as she later proves, to destroy Margaret, but Mother Dearest has a stranglehold on the stability of her world. The use of the prayer closet, complete with her own homemade effigy of God, serves to reinforce that all that exists in their claustrophobic world is what Mother allows to exist. Any resistance to her power will land her straight back into the womb where she will be delivered only when Margaret says so. There's no mistaking that this particular punishment, which remains a consistent one throughout every interpretation of the story, establishes that even though Carrie has the strength to defeat her, Mother cannot be denied because ultimately, Mother is akin to God in their house. This spiritual void that Mother has created is the seat of Margaret's monstrosity. What's worse is that she's not doing it as a force of will based on what she inherently wants. Unlike our femme fatales from before who ruined men to revel in their own power, or someone like Ginger who was transformed through instinct to destroy, Margaret White is on a single-minded mission to force her daughter to conform to a patriarchal ideal that no one, not even she, can live up to. Doyle aptly sums up Mother White as the parthenogenetic mother who creates for herself and by herself, who gives life and takes it away. But all that power has been profaned, turned to the purpose of valorizing misogyny and keeping other women in line. Margaret uses the backbone of patriarchy as her religious teachings, trapping herself in the same prison that she uses to control Carrie. Where there are no men to take up the role of oppressor, Margaret has adopted the language and the stance to pick up the slack. She creates a world where home is entirely devoted to the worship of a male god of her own creation, where Margaret is the favorite one who can administer punishment for any infractions that she interprets to be going against not only her, but the absent patriarch. The end result is a catastrophe of failure, and despite her best efforts, Mother could not offer her daughter's uncontested submission to her own idealized male god. Still, she was a force to be reckoned with, and seeing as Carrie chose to crawl back into that prayer closet with her, it shows that even if she failed to kill her daughter's power, she could still influence her after her death. 
Monstrous mothers aren't always out to harm their offspring, however. Sometimes their monstrosity comes from how they create and protect them. Such is definitely the case when we look to the queen mother who stalks the ship of the Nostromo in Alien. There is a lot to unpack with this franchise, and, as always, we don't have the capacity to cover it all here in one go. That said, as important a mother figure as she is, our nameless alien queen doesn't always get the recognition that she deserves. We all know about Margaret White, and there's been tons to say about monstrous mother figures who kill by proxy like Pamela Voorhees, Mrs. Bates, or Grandma Dollarhide. Those are not only human women, however, but also imperfect killers, usually for some skewed logic on their part. The first two mothers listed killed on behalf of a missing male figure that they were aiming to please. The second two were themselves absent, their male family members extending their monstrosity from beyond the grave. The alien queen, however, is motivated by only one thing, and that is to create and protect her children. The Alien Queen was the result of the combined efforts of screenwriter Dan O'Bannon, artist H.R. Geiger, and special effects designer Carlo Rimbaldi to create a truly autonomous and dangerous creature. What makes this particular creature unique among Our Lady Monsters is in how it attains and approaches motherhood for the species. First off, our queen is entirely capable of fertilizing the eggs alone. This brings up the question of how gender is even represented in this situation. Some speculative theories on the internet have asked if this means that they are all female by default, which plays into a nightmarish idea of the monstrous feminine run amok. That is being a little too quick on the gender binary draw, however. Director Ridley Scott has said in an interview with Digital Spy that it's a hybrid, going on to clarify that these monsters are hermaphrodites, who reproduce asexually. Their method of birthing is based on a few different parasitic insects, which entails using a viable host who gets too close to the eggs and acts as incubator for the new alien life form. In some respects, literally anything that the alien can implant in could be a viable host, and could therefore be a kind of mother figure. Sort of. The journey to fostering new alien children is cut short because the life form doesn't incubate for long before bursting out of the host body, killing it. There is a deep rabbit hole of speculation and theory that lends itself to this reproductive cycle, and I have included a fun video about this in the show notes if you are interested in knowing more. That said, let's look at how this mother works and what she does. In contrast to our bad mothers that we've seen to this point, the queen is practically an absentee parent, taking no part in the selection of the host, nor the guidance of the new offspring. Of course, we see through the first film that there's no need for the queen to concern itself with the process, as the embryonic xenomorph will find its way by instinct first, and through sheer force of its killing nature after. That said, this isn't to say that the queen is fine with having its babies messed with, in the follow-up film by James Cameron, the aliens are just doing their alien thing of using the human colonists as a way to create more versions of themselves when the space marines arrive. This is nothing more than a predatory creature fighting with something that has come to challenge its habitat, and though we, as humans, naturally sympathize with the people of the story, 
This isn't a battle that amounts to much more than man versus nature. It only becomes personal when Ripley destroys the queen's eggs. There is a telling scene in this film where, through nothing more than showing intention to hurt its offspring, Ripley and the queen have a moment where they are at a truce. The queen understands her intentions and actively calls off the other aliens, showing that there is more to this creature than mindless destruction. This is made all the more clear when Ripley then goes on to destroy the eggs in front of a furious queen, who then actively targets Newt specifically. Writer Megan Navarro, for the site Bloody Disgusting, wrote that aliens pits mother against mother, and depending on your perspective, neither are wrong, as they're both driving by maternal instinct and preservation. This goes to show that our antagonist in this series has more going on with it than simply being a big evil bug creature. The fact that it could have been reasoned with means that there is space for an emotional core that goes deeper than the predatory elements of this character. The reason we don't explore it more is that it uses human bodies, or really any bodies, as a nice warm meat sack to birth its babies with. Swinging back to the more monstrous elements of this character, its parasitic nature has the capability of changing the function of human bodies to suit its needs. To the best of my knowledge, no one has done a deep dive on what happens when the facehugger impregnates its host, though we are aware through commentary by Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon that the model for the xenomorph is a few different types of parasitic insects whose larvae feed on a host strategically. Since this is the case, we can take what we've seen from the first film, where we witnessed an alien birth, as well as taking hints from what we see from later movies, and make some assumptions on how these aliens use us to do the work of birthing their young. It's clear from the fact that the facehugger has to keep the host alive that the larva garners something from the living tissues around it, more than simply eating muscle and fat. When the host wakes up, they're able to move, but they are possessed of a telltale ravenous hunger to feed their new young. At the time when the larva is ready, the body convulses and finally the new life emerges. This may sound like a birthing from hell, but it lays bare the anxieties and the horrors that can and do sometimes happen in the course of pregnancy. What makes this so scary to us is how the xenomorph can create this new life using any of us. In the first film, the unwilling womb was played by Kane, and a good portion of the horror in that scene, especially for audiences of the time who were not expecting it, was that a man's body could be manipulated in such a way. There is something horrific and profane about the act of birth being enacted through a male body like this, and it's particularly horrible in the way that it strips the event of any kind of joy or sense of wonder that is usually equated with birth through culture. The end result, much like with menstruation, is messy, painful, and difficult to look at. The miracle, when viewed through this lens, turns the body into something that feels just as alien to the host as the life inside it. Of course, with poor Cain, or any of the victims who came in contact with the eggs, this impregnation was done without any regard for what the host wants, because they aren't going to be around for much longer anyway. Still, as we pointed out before, the creature within them is taking something from the host more than just a viable food source. If it was just a matter of eating their way out, they could kill the host, but, as was established in later movies, their body is necessary to create not only a warm cavity for it to grow, but also to contribute to it. 
In that sense, it truly is like a birth through two mothers, with only one meant to survive the process, and the other having it forced on them. The alien queen wasn't the first one to show us the horrors of pregnancy and its toll on the human body, however. That honor went to the devil, who made a mother of a married woman in Rosemary's Baby. First published in 1967 by Ira Levin, the film rights were snapped up while the book was still in the proof stage of going to market. The potential for this film was obvious before it had become a bestseller, and it's not hard to see why. If it's been a while, or you're only familiar with this story's name, the basics go as follows. Rosemary and her actor husband Guy are thrilled at the beginning to find themselves a very nice apartment in New York City. Seeing as Guy is an actor who hasn't gotten remarkable work yet, and Rosemary doesn't work at all because it's the 60s, this was fortuitous indeed. Unfortunately, like all rental properties that are too good to be true, this one comes with a double whammy of having a dark past and Minnie and Roman, the most invasive and annoying neighbors in the history of neighborhoods. Not long after they move in, Guy is able to land a substantial role when the actor that had originally been cast just happened to go blind. In his elation, he decides that it's baby time for the couple, and with the help of Minnie, he drugs Rosemary, who then has a horrifying dream that she's being raped by a creature that we later understand is Satan. She soon finds that she is pregnant after all, and the rest of the story follows her nightmarish maternal journey as she nurtures and finally gives birth to the Antichrist. In Rosemary's case, like Carol Ann, her monstrosity is put upon her entirely because of her femininity. When the story begins, there isn't anything inherently evil or wrong about her. Her body, and specifically her fertility, is what creates the monster, both in the form of the titular child, as well as in Rosemary herself. Once she is pregnant, her relationship to the world changes as much as her connection to her own body. She goes from being a normal woman, checking all the boxes that are expected of her, to feeling like everyone around her is her enemy. Her neighbors from hell are constantly interfering with her life, her husband is dismissive of her needs, and she is scared by the pain she experiences as much as she is the changes in how she's eating. Even without the supernatural element behind this story, Rosemary's tale is something that is highly relatable to many women, both during and after pregnancy. Like with the birthing of the alien queen's larva, this story gives us a look at motherhood stripped of its idealistic trappings. The two stories do share common ground in how they show physical changes that go on within the body, and there's a lot of horror to be found in that alone. What sets Rosemary apart, however, is how it turns the experience of pregnancy into an exercise in hysteria and madness. The woman at the center of it all becomes withdrawn and a shadow of her former self. Her innocence and trust is lost by the end, though it's not difficult to see why. Rosemary's plight with the overbearing or contradictory wishes of those around her is something that is often all too familiar for real women, who struggle to set boundaries amid people's enthusiasm for the big event. It can and does leave many women feeling trapped under the expectations or wants of people who, even when they aren't connected to a satanic cult, can be openly dismissive and even overly critical of them. Whether in fiction or reality, 
These behaviors can set off all manner of anxieties about what it means to be so responsible for a life within you, and leave women feeling raw and paranoid about doing anything wrong. This also begins to open some particularly ugly elements within our culture, where a woman's body is reduced to what it holds, giving many women the feeling that their lives and personality are worth less to those around them than the developing baby. In this story, Rosemary's body is being used as a means to accomplish what the cult, and by extension what Guy, wants. And even when she's in pain or scared, the emphasis is always on the greater good for the child, rather than her well-being. Likewise, once she gives birth, her baby is initially taken away from her, and she's left to feel the emptiness of postpartum alone. The experience transforms her into someone different than she was at the beginning, and the end result is a mother who is no longer in love with her husband, but idly accepts her role void of joy or celebration. Again, Rosemary's monstrosity might not be obvious to us on its face. She spends most of the time being the victim of Guy's gaslighting and the cult's designs on making sure that her body works the way it wants. It is worth it to note that to modern audiences, this is enough to make her seem sympathetic enough that she doesn't seem to embody the monstrous at all, seeing her as being weak or having no backbone. This frustration with her can be seen as its own version of something monstrous, casting her as being almost complicit with the abuse that she suffers. That all established, Rosemary's treatment wasn't all that hyperbolic for a woman in the 60s, considering that actress Mia Farrow's then-husband, Frank Sinatra, served her divorce papers for daring to take the role of Rosemary, and refusing to drop out before it was finished because he wanted her to be his housewife, this speaks volumes for how much autonomy the women of the time didn't have. With this in mind, Rosemary's transformation into the role of mother by rejecting her husband's promises to have other children with him, and accepting the child that Satan created is of note here. At that point in the film, she's been more or less set free from her obligation to the child that she carried. If she were the same woman that she'd been at the start, and the one that continued to do what was expected of her, she might very well have taken Guy's insistent pleas to just let the coven have this monstrosity that he helped to create and move on. But she spits in his face and chooses to nurture her child over his wishes. It is the first choice that she makes of her own accord, and one that she makes entirely for her own sake. Satan may have been the father, but she was his mother, and she was not going to be told that she couldn't tend to her child. In this way, she's embracing her devil child and fully accepting her role in his life beyond morality, her beliefs, or even her marriage vows. Of course, contrary to what some people might think, a woman's life doesn't end at motherhood. Eventually, women grow into older women, and in the land of popular culture, there is a limited number of paths for them to travel. The goal, particularly in Hollywood, is to try to grow old as gracefully as possible, retaining as much of that youthful look as a woman can. White hair might not be a deal-breaker for some women, but the natural signs of age are. There is tremendous pressure on some women to remain as beautiful as possible for as long as possible. Such women who can attain this gold standard are rewarded with accolades of being classy or timeless, 
other women who might not be able to keep their age from affecting their image can still be cast as kindly grandmothers or meddlesome mother-in-laws. What's interesting about this kind of role is how often it's still connected back to a family unit. In the case of a meddlesome older mother, this is what happens when Margaret or Pamela actually let their children grow up, but never let them move too far out of their sight, even after they started their own lives. This is a staple of the sitcom, where an older woman is pitted as anything from a well-meaning nuisance to very nearly crossing the line into an antagonist for a comedy. Her reach into the family is always outside of it, but only barely, and it's well established that she has no boundaries in how she acts, often inserting herself into conversations about sex, child-rearing, career woes, or anything else that might affect the individual members. Occasionally, she is seen as a wise figure who holds the key to the conflict of an episode or movie. Other times, she's someone to be avoided at all cost, likely to say the wrong thing and constantly on the verge of starting some kind of drama. In any of these cases, however, we never know what she's thinking because whether it's the sweet grandmother or the harpy mother-in-law, she is someone to be locked outside of the narrative. We see her effect on the family as an outsider to it, as invasive at its most benign, potentially deadly at its worst. Let's think again about Rosemary's hellish neighbor, Minnie, played by Ruth Gordon. It's true that the men of the narrative, particularly Guy, were actively working against Rosemary for the whole story, but Minnie was the one working closest with her. She facilitated drugging Rosemary and continually provided her with the Tannis root in an attempt to control her. Her method of keeping Rosemary under heel was through a kind of manipulation that was framed as kindness and concern. She insists on Rosemary seeing only the best doctor, in her opinion, for her baby. She makes her an awful-tasting drink every day for her health, or so she says. Where Guy works on his wife through demands and disapproval, Minnie is offering a kind of toxic form of comfort that is made all the more insidious because of her role as the elder woman of the two. No matter how much she doesn't want to go along with the elder woman's plans, Rosemary's objections are almost constantly overruled, specifically by those around her. The main reason given to shut her up is that she's being rude, showing that it was more important to respect her elder than it was to pay attention to the clear signs around her that something was wrong. This is all connected to family, and the monstrosity here is characterized by the older woman becoming a more parasitic version of the bad mother. Where the bad mother was usually at odds with a girl on the verge of self-discovery and working to undermine her independence, the parasitic older woman is attempting to stunt the growth of the whole family, if not to take it over entirely. Take the two examples of this that we got in the 2018 film Hereditary. The first and most obvious is the matriarch of the family and Annie's mother, Ellen. She's dead before the film starts, but her presence looms over the family for the whole film and contributes to the horror of the climax. Like many before her, Ellen has designs on what goes on with the children of this family specifically, but in this case, she oversteps her boundaries in ways that Minnie wasn't able to. Rather than direct Annie in ways that she wanted, in some instances, Ellen had tried to usurp her role 
even attempting to breastfeed her children when they were infants. It's an uncomfortable bit of foreshadowing that shows how reluctant this woman was in letting go of her role of mother to transition to the role of grandmother, and how willing she was to enforce her own designs on the children that were being raised. The nature of Ellen's monstrosity here centers on the shaping and control of her grandchildren, but their mother, Annie, is seemingly left out of her plans. For her, the other half of this parasitic duo comes in the form of Joan, whom Annie meets at a support group. Joan fulfills the other role that we saw in Minnie in Rosemary's Baby, catering to her fears and nurturing her needs. The difference here is that the witch within is much better concealed beneath comforting coffee dates that allow Annie her moments of vulnerability and honesty that she isn't able to express at home. Joan reveals herself to be just as parasitic to the family as Ellen, but her guise was believable as a wise friend who could offer Annie the means to deal with her grief. This adds a new dimension to the horror of the deadly older woman. In this case, Annie's downfall comes from the trust that she gained in Joan when her honesty was weaponized and used against her. This is in direct contrast to Rosemary's plight, as her manipulators were more insistent on shutting her up and ignoring her emotions and her pain to act like they didn't exist. Joan shows us that it can be just as monstrous to allow the wrong person into our lives, lest they discover what can truly hurt us. This is what happens when the monstrous older woman moves through society. As we noted, she's never given her own story, and the only way that she's connected to the world, it seems, is through a kind of stolen fertility. Her methods tend to center directly on taking over a mother's position or taking the power seat over the family. What happens then when a woman is disconnected from this role of nurturer gone mad? She moves to the shadows, of course. She goes to those places where we can't see her, where her aging face can't be seen, and where she can inhabit our nightmares and our stories. The image of the old hag is something that is inherently villainous in our culture, but it goes beyond not being beautiful anymore, assuming we ever were. In popular culture, the image of the old man is often associated with wisdom, owing largely to figures like Gandalf, and that other wizard that runs a school, and just happens to look like him. These figures are kind, and their role is often as a gentle guide that allows the main characters a chance to screw up a few times before helping them out, usually giving them advice that allows them to attain victory by themselves. The hag, by contrast, is someone to be avoided at all cost, because it is understood that she is a danger. There's a more chaotic element to her brand of evil, however. Where the parasitic older woman is cutting into family ties, breaking into the unit to where her influence is an active hindrance to its members, the hag seems to have more in common with our sirens of old, after they got their fins, of course. If you come wandering through her woods, you are fair game, and there's a good chance that you might not be leaving the woods. That said, the old hag is far more mobile than this, and sometimes she comes to see you, whether you invited her or not. Her favorite time to visit, it seems, is when you are at your most vulnerable. Old hag syndrome is the name given to something called sleep paralysis, wherein a sleeper will become aware 
but they're unable to move as the name implies. Those affected by it will often report feeling a weight upon their bodies, even to the point where they feel like they're choking, and many hallucinate a shadowy figure either in the room or on the bed, if not on their bodies. There are scientific reasons for this to happen, but the legend of the old hag persists, giving the phenomenon a feel like it's a character out of our fairy tales that has come to see us for real. A study was done in Newfoundland after a larger percentage of the population had claimed to have encounters with the hag, even going on to incorporate the word hag into common speech as shorthand for their experiences. According to writer Allie Turner for the magazine Nouveau, the hag was said to be a witch-like, wrinkled and withered old woman with long hair. She can appear in doorways, be next to the bed, or even crawl on top of people and sit on them or pin them down. What makes encounters with the old hag interesting to us is how it can affect anyone, even the non-believers among us. Turner cited the research of folklorist Dale Jarvis, who found that even among those people who did not believe in supernatural creatures, many would swear that they, or someone close to them, had encountered the hag. Jarvis was quoted as saying that for the people of Newfoundland, the hag exists outside the realm of fairies and goblins. It is a real and present danger that people experience. What's curious about this phenomenon is that the danger inherent in this mysterious hag is never revealed, but all who experience her presence know it exists. This is the end game of a woman who does not fit within the patriarchal world of sexual availability and ensuing motherhood. For much of our look at the life cycle of monstrosity in women, we note that there is a common theme of how often it comes in direct opposition with the role set for them by powerful men. That said, there are no women more abhorrent and frightening to patriarchal culture than the old hag who lives outside of society. As Sadie Doyle describes, this is the primal threat in our earliest stories, a woman who lives on the outskirts of civilization, rejected by her community, a woman who is old, ugly, asexual. There is no one who fits this description better than the old woman who lives deep in the forest in a house that moves with chicken legs, Baba Yaga. Unlike most of the figures that we've talked about, Baba Yaga isn't someone you see in pop culture a lot. She has had moments where she pops into a narrative here or there, but for the most part, she remains more a folkloric character, particularly in Slavic tales. That said, there is an attraction to her all the same, though she is somewhat difficult to translate into popular stories with any accuracy. Scholars Jill Terry Rudy and Jerome Lyle MacDonald in their paper, Baba Yaga, Monsters of the Week, and Pop Culture's Formation of Wonder and Families Through Monstrosity, wrote that protagonists seek her defeat because she is traditionally ugly, powerful, and awful, which primarily means that she seeks control for her own self-serving benefit. The two scholars made mention of how this casting of her as a villain flattens her as a character, robbing her of the complexity that she embodies in her tales. This does tend to be the case, as villainous characters, even when they are sympathetic, tend to exist on a good versus evil binary, especially in North American stories. Baba Yaga doesn't fit within this paradigm, because she's neither and both all at once. To understand this better, 
Let's unpack what Rudy and McDonald gave us as her descriptor. First of all, let's focus on that ugly, powerful, and awful part. Contrasted with what Doyle said earlier, the fact that this woman is someone who is unattractive is important. Given how fetishized women's appearances are, Baba Yaga's ugliness is not something that is brought up simply as an insult, but rather a statement of fact. She's not ashamed of her appearance in the tales told about her, and unlike evil queens who seek to restore themselves from the signs of aging, she pays no mind to it. In this sense, she has power over how she appears and makes no apologies for it. And this isn't where her power ends, either. Living outside of society, she might be rejected by her community, but she also rejects its trappings of beauty, acceptance, and adherence to its rules. Here's where we have to pay attention to how she seeks control for her own self-serving benefit, because this determines whether she seems awful or not, and to what degree. As Doyle describes her, Baba Yaga is a powerful hag with iron teeth and wild magic. And those who come to see her, she will bless them or eat them, and there's no way to know in advance which one she'll pick. Obviously, the fact that she could potentially make a meal out of her visitors would be enough to make her villainous. But there is something incredibly powerful about the fact that she alone has the choice. There's no one who comes to see her who comes with more power than she has over herself and her surroundings. She lives wild, free, and beyond the reach of consequences. And ultimately, is that not the true image of the monstrous feminine actualized? From the time that girls are brought into the world, they carry the weight of their monstrosity, aware of who they are as they move from the liminality of childhood to the monstrous beginnings of puberty, to the deformity of motherhood, and into the quiet shadows of the crone. When she reaches that stage, to become someone like Baba Yaga is to embrace her nature and accept that power inherent in choosing to please herself only. It is living beyond being good or bad and outside of expectations. And in a world that has a role that is so deeply carved into society, that insists that women carry the burden of a legacy for others, to adhere to a racial standard set well before they were born, to perform for the world, there is nothing more threatening or freeing than to abandon these roles and grow old so recklessly and carelessly. And that brings us to a close for our look at the life cycle of monstrous maidens. It has been a bit of a tour through these monstrous women, and I'll admit that some of them didn't quite get as much of a look as I wanted. But if any of this left you wanting more, just remember that new episodes are always in the works, and it's likely that we'll be seeing more of these ladies in the future. But for now, let's put the month of November behind us and close this chapter on killer queens and monstrous maidens. Thank you for joining me again for the Armchair Scholar's Guide. This podcast was written and researched by Danielle Claussen, and all additional links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes at sinisteredgardenlegacy.com under the heading Litanies. Full transcripts of the show, including marginal notes, are available over at Patreon at the $2 tier. All contributors get early access to the show, 
and higher level patrons get access to bloopers, which are mostly just filled with me yelling at the people in my parking lot and my cat's numerous interruptions. And speaking of patrons, special thanks goes out to Maggie, Tim, Jonathan, Melissa, Rihanna, and newcomer Bibliobot. Thank you all for your support. This podcast would not be available as widely as it is without this support, and I am very grateful to each of you. Extra special thanks, as always, goes to Jonathan Glass, the wizard that makes things sound as lovely as they do. His work is available through Spotify and Apple Music, and you should make sure to go give him a listen. We also need to give a shout out to Naomi over at Dope Nostalgia. She's got some great artist interviews coming up that you will not want to miss. And with that, my dear listeners, I will thank you for letting me be your guide once again. The holidays are on the horizon, and that means that we're going to have to get festive around here, whether we like it or not. That doesn't mean that the holidays can't get a little creepy, however, and we have some interesting presents for you coming up next time. As a heads up, I'm doing things a little differently during the season of Yule, but we'll be getting to that soon enough. So until then, keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.